Like many of you, I'm curious about several topics, and what better way to learn than to speak directly with the people who have the answers that you're looking for? My name is Costa. Welcome to Founder Views. That's what this channel is all about. You're going to hear me pick the brains of thought leaders, CEOs, politicians, and business experts about subjects that I'm thinking about or working on at any given time. From economics, business, real estate investing, Bitcoin, lifestyle, politics, and much, much more. Thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. So, you know, I, I think to properly understand the infinite banking concept, it requires an understanding of what's wrong with the current monetary system. And, and I think there's no better time to see firsthand what's wrong with the current system than right now with everything going on. So can you explain in your own opinion what, what's wrong with the current monetary system? Let's start there. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad, uh, Costa, I'm glad that we're recording this for the next five hours because <laughs> so much that I can go into, but I'll, I'll kind of give it a, a summary. The problem is state interference with the market. Uh, the problem is state interference with currency. Uh, if you look back on the history of exchange and the history of voluntary consensual economics, uh, people used to go back and forth with each other without the interference of, of a government or state uh, that's been now deemed necessary in our world. And I disagree that uh, the government is a necessary uh, uh, thing, uh, that central banks are necessary in our economy, uh, because as F.A. Hayek said in The Road to Serfdom, uh, central planning by itself is completely fallible. Um, I posted something this morning that talked about this. Um, if the Bank of Canada governor or committee makes a decision about the economy and is wrong about that decision, who pays the price? Us. You do. Yeah, we do. Uh, if, they, if they get it right, uh, who pays the price? We do. And, and well, what do you mean, Mike? What do you mean by getting it right? The mandate for the government uh, uh, mandate for the Bank of Canada is to grow the economy at a 2% inflation rate. But what that really means is, is that they, don't, they can't produce anything. The government and the Bank of Canada doesn't produce anything other than debt and the ability for banks to lend money right off the assets of the central bank at the time as the backstop to the financial institutions. So when we think about, well, why is this mandate of 2% inflation in place? Because they don't produce anything. All they're doing is producing demand or, or pulling back demand for consumers to go purchase the goods that are in the, in the uh, economy. The issue is, is that the only two tools really that they have is manipulating interest rates and therefore the money supply. So what it really produces is a 2% devaluation of our purchasing power. So inflation and, and, you know, there's so much going on in the, in the regular media right now about inflation, the bank of Canada's decisions to purchase government bonds because the government can't in a closed market auction, the government isn't selling their bonds in the open market. They're not, there's no investors that are lining up uh, in March, April, May, June, July of 2020, lining up to buy a 0.75 five year, 10 year government of Canada bond. So who does the bank of Canada? How does the bank of Canada purchase these bonds? Well, it's an electronic transaction created uh, with the, with newly created money that are, is using these. So the inflation is really an inflation of money supply, which leads to a rise in prices. And I think most Canadians don't realize that the rise in prices isn't because those things are more valuable. It's because money is less valuable. I'll give you an example. Uh, the money supply since March 2020 in Canada increased by 27%. Over that same period of time, the economy grew by 2.7% on net, which means 
10 times the money went into the economy as did the economy grew. So where does that extra money go? Uh, that goes into investing, that goes into real estate, that they, they, people take this extra money that they have, so to speak, and they deploy it uh, in, in non-consumer spending. What happens? The, the values are, are distorted. The value yeah. of a house isn't necessarily like, I look at the average house price here in Vancouver. It's like 1.6, $1.7 million for a regular. Well, you need, number one, who's buying them? Number two, and, and that's not necessarily the statistics don't back up the fact that this is all foreign buyers. Foreign buyers account for less than 5% of the overall market in Vancouver. So they can't be them. Yeah. Right. But when you take a look at the house price, the stock market, and now as it relates to commodity prices, they have all gone massively. The price of them has increased. But again, it's because there's 10 times the amount of money flowing through the system. Yeah. You're seeing a lot of government solutions, for those listening, air quote solutions, but to inflation by essentially... Uh, distributing more free money into the system, like subsidies and checks and like, you know, helping people through inflation. But isn't that kind of just adding to the problem? You're exactly right. Uh, the issue, if you look back in history, Weimar Republic Germany had the same exact same issues. And what they did is they were printing so much capital or currency rather uh, that they were trying to fight inflation with the very thing that inflation <laughs> was, was yeah. being produced yeah. by, which is increased money, uh, money supply. Now, Ludwig von Mises, who, in my opinion, is probably one of the greatest economists that has ever been and it will ever be, said that most people confuse the definition of inflation with the result of inflation. We, we call inflation rising prices, but in actuality is not rising prices. Rising prices is the result of inflation, which is always comes back to the increase in the money supply. Now, a, a little confirmation here. A lot of people would suggest that it's government spending is the problem. And, and while that's true to a limited degree, if you and I took $100,000 or a million dollars and bought a government bond using our the existing money that we had in our bank account. Well, that that's not inflationary. That doesn't drive inflation because it's not driving up the supply of money that is taking existing money and reallocating it is the real issue is Bank of Canada printing, creating again, uh, for those listening, the air quotes here, printing they're just keyboard entering money. They're not actually, there's no printing press. Yeah. This is all electronic. Yeah. The other thing, part of the uh, problem with inflation, that's in my opinion, borderline collusion with the Bank of Canada is the fractional reserve lending system in the banking system. So uh, if if I look back to historically, again, if I look back to the Medici's who operated a, a lending table in Florence, that's loan banking, right? The same thing as me taking existing capital and lending it to the government. Well, I could lend it to, for example, if you had $100,000, you could lend it to me. We would agree on the interest rate based on the intermediary the, the Medici's at that time and today the banks, uh, you, you put money into a five-year GIC or term deposit, they lend that money out and that's how they create the, the return that they're creating, the interest mm -hmm. rate. However, if you had money in your checking account, by legislation and law, they could lend out 90% uh, of that value because you, they know you're not coming back for it yeah. all at one time. So the sum of the sum of this multiplication is that we have a, a, a money and credit system that increases based on how much bank deposits are being lent, lent, uh, lent out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just it's, it's, if you go to any bank 
financial statement, any annual report of any financial institution, you'll, you will see that if you match up their, their time deposits, which is term deposits and GICs, and match it up with their loans, there is a significant amount more loans in, on their bank balance sheet compared to the time deposits they have. So inexorably, they're, they're lending out savings accounts, checking accounts, and the RSP accounts that they have on, on balance. And this is how they multiply the money supply. Yeah, yeah. yeah at, at the core, it's it's a debt based system, right? And you know, how does this? So I don't think in any time in history this system has ever worked, right? So like, how does this come crashing down? Like, you know, what what's your thoughts? Like, what should people be thinking? I think a lot of people are going to get very blindsided if if they haven't been already with inflation. Uh, for those paying attention, obviously, you know, you, you see this coming and hopefully position yourself in the right ways. But um, how like how do you see this ending? Like this can't go on forever. Like there has to be a breaking point at some point. You know, you're you're right. If I had a crystal ball to be able to tell you how I see this coming and was able to predict it correctly, <laughs> we would be having this conversation in my background. It wouldn't be the wall here in my room. It would, it would be the Cayman Islands or yeah, Bahamas. Anyway, uh, well, I think this is the fallacy of, of knowledge that I certainly don't know. And how could anyone know what's going to happen? And again, this comes back to how can a central planning institution such as the Bank of Canada try and make these decisions and get it right? It's guesswork. It's merely guesswork. Now, what there's there's a few probable conclusions to the way that this inflation will correct itself. We'll we'll get this soft landing that Jerome Powell and Tip McClam have been talking about. Uh, but that's very unlikely, in my opinion. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I think we're going to see continued uh, hikes in the interest rate, both in Canada and the U.S. Uh, I think uh, we're going to fall right into recession based on the uh, overindulgence or reliance on these interest rate hikes. Uh, uh, just because, you know, in certain markets in Vancouver, secularly, and, in, and I'll use this as anecdotal evidence, the Fraser Valley area of Vancouver has come down maybe 15, 20% in the housing prices. The issue is, is that the affordability metrics, because the interest rates have doubled or even tripled, uh, your, your mortgages are now uh, more expensive. So your payments have gone up, even though the prices have come down. So everything is kind of equal. Yeah. So we're not getting we're not getting a correction per se. We're just making it harder for people to afford homes. And and so when you have local, municipal, provincial, and federal governments that are all trying to create these housing initiatives, it's counterintuitive to what the Bank of Canada is doing right now by making housing more expensive. So I don't think we're going to get a soft landing. Uh, are we gonna? Are we going into a Weimar Republic hyperinflation where we're gonna see maybe you know an acceleration, an exponential acceleration of inflation? I, it's it's an outlier. I'm not gonna say that it's not possible, uh, but it's very unlikely that that uh, solution is gonna happen. And uh, we're not going back. Guaranteed. The one thing I can guarantee you is that we're not going back to the way things were. Um, we're not going back to, uh, the kind of gas prices that we were used to the kind of housing prices that we were used to. I will say this though, is that everybody, because the narrative for inflation is surrounding around, okay, well, it's Putin, uh, his actions against Ukraine or it's supply chain issues. And, and while there will be some marginal effect of, Increased production is going to provide more things on the shelf. When you have more things on the shelf, the prices come down. But because we have more money on the shelf, there's a fundamental uh, uh, miscalculation in pricing. And, and now, certainly, and has been since the advent of central banking, in my view. So uh, there's lots of po po possibilities, only a few 
probabilities. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I, I wish you had the crystal ball, but <laughs> I guess no one does. I was going to ask you about this as well. So for for the average person that reads the news, you know, uh, goes on social media, they would think inflation is due to, like you said, supply chain, COVID, war in Ukraine. Like there's very little mention in the mainstream news about uh, monetary supply and how that in affects inflation. So how much do you think that uh, inflation is due to the money supply versus those other external um, issues that I mentioned? It's incalculable. We don't know because we don't have a Petri dish where we can have a control experiment to say insulatedly money supply was this factor without all the other supply chain issues and, and, and uh, economic lockdowns around the world. Uh, so there's, there's no such thing as a control experiment. So therefore we can't really quantify. And because money supply, real inflation, which is an increase in the money supply, which is a rise in prices or a devaluation of, of purchasing power, um, because it goes through the economy unequally, we can't say this percentage or that percentage was due to this. What we do know is that there's fundamental problems and exacerbating problems. The fundamental problem is money supply. The exacerbating problems is your supply and demand problems. Uh, you know, uh, energy prices in Europe right now is a, is a, is a direct result of the supply of, uh, that's being uh, pressured on by Ukraine. Uh, and other, you know, geopolitical factors in the caucuses. Uh, but fundamentally, the value of the dollars that are purchasing that energy has also been affected. So there's no hard and fast rule. We just know that it's a factor and much smarter minds than me might be able to put a number to it. But I, I would challenge them that they're probably wrong. Yeah, for sure. Um so how, how does then, uh, back to infinite banking, how does infinite banking uh, mitigate your risk and exposure to this fiat monetary system? Yeah, so this is a very hot topic in the infinite banking community. Uh, it's also a very hot topic in what kind of, I mean, generally speaking, what kind of assets are going to protect you? Uh, from um, uh, monetary policy. And so you have global economy to, to, to think about, the money system to think about, and alternative assets to think about. In his book, The Dying of Money, uh, uh, Ronald Merckx, who wrote that book under the pseudonym uh, Genzo Parsons, it's a really, it's a heavy book, but it's very, very good. And if anybody wants to uh, check it out on, I think Amazon's got it, or, but it's, it's like paperbacks, like 50 bucks or something. What's like it called? Call it the Dying of Money. Okay. The Dying of Money. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic book. What in that book to kind of summarize, if you don't want to spend the 50 bucks and read it, I'll give you the <laughs> clip notes version. Uh, inflation goes through the economy and affects different assets in different areas at different times. So uh, what we did see was the spike in the uh, uh, stock markets. And if you look globally, all stock markets took this similar dip. They all acted the same. Uh, they took this huge crash and then within a week or two, uh, it had spiked. And that was because Right at the beginning of COVID, we had this massive stimulus package. Oh, you know, the economy is dying and we need to save it. Again, coming back to the flawed John Maynard Keynes theory uh, that government should print money to get us through a recession type of thing. So as assets are, are fluctuating and certain hard investable assets are the first benefactors of increased monetary supply. So that was the real estate market and the, and the stock market. From time to time, you need to have your money liquid in an environment where you can leverage against it in order to deploy your capital into different asset classes that at the beginning part of inflation start, start rising in prices or devaluing in, in, in purchasing power. What infinite banking allows you to do 
is very quickly and automatically have the liquidity available. Like you're going to create a pool of capital that's going to sit inside a properly designed dividend paying participating whole life insurance contract. And I'll get into why that's the asset class. That's a preferable asset class to replicate the function of banking. But by doing, making, having that, that capital sit inside that contract, you have the first right of refusal because it's your money. So you can mm -hmm. borrow as much as 90 or depending on how you borrow, even up to hundred percent of that capital yeah. in order to deploy it. Yeah. Number two way that uh, infinite banking protects you from inflation is the ability to pay off those loans at your discretion. Uh, in an inflationary environment, uh, Costa, savers are punished, borrowers are rewarded. And the reason is, and, and we, we hear the argument that, well, government debt doesn't matter because they'll just inflate the dollar uh, in order to, relatively speaking, shrink the debt. Well, that's a flawed argument because now you don't know what your dollar is worth. But regardless, everybody that had a mortgage of $100,000, well, what is $100,000 today compared to five years ago? It's almost inconsequential in relation. So if you had, for example, capital stored inside a properly designed contract, insurance contract, and you had $100,000 loan against the collateralized by that insurance contract. Now that $100,000, you've deployed it in an asset that's presumably appreciated, not because of anything that uh, you've done specially as an investor or business owner, just by default, because everything's going up in an inflationary environment at the beginning part of an inflation. Yeah. So, uh, the ability to borrow. The second thing is, is the ability for um, your deposits. Like, for example, if you have a premium that's going in to facilitate the payment of this insurance contract, well, the value is going down because the value is not appreciating. It's fixed. It's a fixed cost in an inflationary environment. Fixed costs are cheaper based on the reduced buying power. So for example, if you're putting as an example, a thousand dollars a month back in, well, let's just say in 1990, if you're putting a thousand dollars a month into an insurance contract, well, that's a lot of relative buying power for a thousand dollars today. It's nothing. You know, you mm -hmm. go, you go to one of these restaurants down here, one of these uh, new uh, Michelin rated restaurants in, uh, in Vancouver, you're going to spend $1,000 a plate. <laughs> so am I going to get the temporary enjoyment out of that money? And this is this comes back to the, uh, uh, everybody makes an economic decision about how they spend their money. Well, do I enjoy the ability to have a $1,000 king crab meal? Or do I make my monthly contribution for my future? Yeah. So there's a whole lot of economics that are involved in that, but we're, we're always making decisions. So the decision for, for clients and for myself certainly is that I decided to start setting aside my cash and I turned it into a pool of capital over time. That pool of capital has been useful for me to leverage against for whatever reason I want. Yeah. You, you hear a couple of questions that I want to unpack there. Um, some people look at infinite, like a whole life policy as an investment and some think of it like just a hyper savings account. Like how do you view it? Is it an investment to you? No, absolutely not. It's the, it's the fountainhead from which all investments should derive, which means yeah. I'm setting aside my money. I'm getting a better than bank rate, uh, return, but most importantly, the um, capital that's uh, accumulating inside that insurance contract is a tax exempt vehicle to store my capital. And then my, when I want to invest, I'm not withdrawing that money out of that policy. I'm using it as collateral in yeah. a, in a loan yeah. situation. Yeah. Um, so therefore the money's growing in two places at once. I got my savings, I got my investing. 
Yeah, got it. Two separate things. I agree. So another question I have. So the these insurance companies issuing these policies, they're playing in the same system that we're talking about, right? So do do you does it concern you at all that the assets uh, that these insurance companies are, are deploying their capital in uh, are 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 gonna are, are not gonna perform the way they have due to this this fiat system eventually collapsing or going down? Like you know, I know. We can look historically and these policies have never like not paid a dividend, you know, through great depressions, world wars and all that. But do you think there, there's a potential going concern for that not always being the case? These insurance That's companies. That's a great question. Uh, there's a couple, couple points that I want to make uh, on that. Number one, because the insurance company uh, pools of capital, these participating funds, are not speculating. They are they're going they're they're doing the same thing that the banks are doing. They're just not doing it on a fractional system. So for example, mm. it's essentially a loan pool. Uh, and and it's a loan pool where I could be the beneficiary of that loan pool. The I could be the, the primary beneficiary of the returns. And because I am also a borrower from that pool of money. Because remember, you're not borrowing against your money. You're borrowing against the total money that's in that pool. And the, the total money, I'm paying it back. And that indirectly, that interest rate that I'm using, that I'm paying, is indirectly going back into my contract yeah. because yeah. it's part of the return in the overall pool. Uh, that's important. Number two is because it's loans... Do loans exist? Does a does does a contract, a collateral security agreement, uh, not exist anymore because of the monetary unit that you're using to calculate the returns on? No, uh, there are many different currencies in the world. If we go to central bank digital currencies (CBDCs), and if that's the kind of the direction, then I know that the U.S. Fed is is kind of quote unquote testing this out right now. This this whole idea of CBDCs, um, then the currency will all convert likely. I, I, again, I don't have crystal ball, but in my, in my logical deduction, the, the value of the Canadian dollars that I'm invest that I've got not invested, but saved inside my insurance contract are going to convert into a CBDC. If that's the case, it's still as a, a centralized, currency to your point about uh, fiat. But if that collapses, remember that I'm probably leveraged already against those things into non-fiat assets. So what does that look like? I might rent, uh, purchase a, a storage rental facility or participate in a storage rental facility, which is being paid again by fiat currency. But what if that's being paid in other ways. Maybe, maybe I'm into the crypto space with, uh, through leveraging my policy. Maybe I'm in the gold or silver space. Maybe I'm in the real estate space. Maybe I'm in some other investment. Like what, what else could you do with the money that's in your account, uh, or in your policy rather, uh, whatever I want. So therefore, uh, don't just stay in fiat currency derivatives such as the stock market, mutual funds, or anything like that. Yeah. If, if, because there is a percentage of the, of the people out there that are all very concerned about the fragility, if you will, of the uh, current uh, monetary system, which has been in place since 1944, uh, and more recently since 1971, when the gold standard was abandoned. Uh, but, um, yeah, leverage against the contract. If you're really worried about the collapse of a fiat dollar, uh, and get into non fiat based asset classes. Yeah. So a couple uh, more questions with that. Like, is, is there, would you say what happens to these policies in the event where, uh, borrowers that are leveraging against. Uh, their policies not being able to pay back because you know their their investments that they thought were good were involved in this collapse or, or whatnot. What what happens in that case? So there's a couple things that may happen, 
But I want to I want to preface my comments here with where is the risk? The risk isn't in the insurance company. It's not in the contract. The risk is in whatever investment that that individual decides to do, right? Yeah. So in, in terms of if that person can't pay it back, let's just say cost that you've got a hundred thousand bucks sitting inside in a cash value of your life insurance contract that you have diligently been disciplined to save over time and the dividends that have been paid into that by the insurance company, the returns that they've experienced have accumulated both with your contributions plus the returns on your contributions minus the expenses of the contract. So let's just say you've got $100,000 in there now and you borrow $50,000 and you're like, uh, I bought FTX stock. <laughs> God help all those that people out there that bought FTX, especially Ontario teacher pension one. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, how'd you like to take a $91 million write down? Anyway, um, let's just say you invested $50,000 into FTX. So that's for all intents and purposes worth zero now. So you've got a $50,000 loan and you've got a $100,000 cash value. Well, imagine that's just like a mortgage, right? The Does the $50,000 loan affect the growth of the $100,000? No, the full $100,000 is still appreciating. So you could do one of a couple things. Number one, you can uh, continue to uh, attack that loan at your discretion. If you've taken a policy loan, uh, you could pay interest only. You cannot make any payments. You could pay that off at any time with, at your discretion if it's a policy loan. So you uh, will continue to ride that loan. Uh, you've taken maybe some tax. You've got some other capital gains that you've taken uh, uh, in your life that you've written off with this capital loss of FTX. From a tax planning perspective, you've got maybe a huge tax return somehow throw that against the policy if you wish, pay that down to zero that policy loan. That 100,000 has never stopped compounding. Or you could pay the interest and uh, continue to pay the interest as, a, as an exp investment expense. Uh, that investment expense, uh, you're not accruing a greater value. You're keeping that loan at 50,000, the 100 is still growing. Um, or you could collapse the policy. I mean, I, I don't know why you would, but let's just say that you decided to do that and uh, you walked away from the policy. So now your cash surrender value, you take the net of that cash surrender value and uh, uh, pay off the uh, policy loan, walk away with whatever growth you've got on the 100,000 uh, since the time that you executed the loan. Uh, if you died while that policy loan was outstanding, and let's just say you had a million dollar death benefit, a $100,000 cash value and a $50,000 policy loan, well, your beneficiaries would get a tax-free payout net of the policy loan. So $950,000 would go to your beneficiary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, another question I have. So, you know, when you look into what these insurance companies invest in, you know, very uh, low risk assets, right? Like, you know, real estate, um, you know, bonds, corporate bonds and all this. Uh, I, I read an article recently about, uh, San Francisco office vacancies. Uh, I think it was like 25%. These like big office towers are, are vacant at 25%. Um, does that concern, I know, and, and I know San Francisco is, you know, kind of like the, the melting pot of like, you know, money being thrown around and all this, but so that may not be a, a good example that can um, translate into other areas. But when you see that, like 25% vacancy rate, knowing that insurance companies are invested in these office towers, um, you know, what are your thoughts on that in general? Mm -hmm. Like the yeah. and even like COVID and combine that with the fact that we've learned that more and more companies can uh, operate effectively and more efficiently in a lot of cases being remote. So like the need for office spaces and what was once a great investment or great return uh, might not be the best because, you know, there's no, not the same usage for office space. So yeah, just general thoughts on that. Yeah. <clears throat> I love what Nelson Nash, who is the uh, developer originator of the infinite banking system said about uh, purchasing land. 
if you've got, for example, and I'm not just talking about commercial or industrial uh, space, but if you've got a piece of property that's maybe 100 acres uh, and it's timbered, uh, how many different uses of that property could you have? Uh, you could harvest timber, you could develop the land, you could uh, replant the timber that you've harvested and, and grow it over the long term. What actuaries do is they see things over a very long term. San Francisco uh, being having, for example, that 25% vacancy rate is a temporary thing. Will the economy uh, correct itself so that that vacancy rate will come back to maybe eight, seven, six percent over the long term? Probably, uh, but the actuaries, because it's not a money manager, in, in my view, uh, money managers are looking for the returns and they're to get those quarterly rankings in a mutual fund. Well, this is very, very different. The asset classes that uh, the actuaries are going to invest in are going to be stable and very long-term sustainable. Uh, whether that is a, uh, they, they might purchase a, a, a bond in, in Microsoft. They're not going to purchase a bond in a startup company. Uh, they're going to look internationally. They're going to look through different asset classes. And one of the very, the only place where you can get an, a very specific asset class is a life insurance contract. And that is what's called mortality credits. And mortality credits are based on people that are perhaps living longer. They've qualified for insurance because they're very, very healthy. Uh, they've uh, increased their deposits over time. And, and so they're letting the insurance company off the hook uh, for, for mathematical reasons that I, I won't bore you with the details today. But the longer a life insurance policy exists, the less risk that it poses to the insurance company because the less death benefit is reliant on the insurance company. Uh, so therefore, these mortality credits, as people tend to, uh, for example, live longer than the charts that they're currently using, uh, which were just updated to, I believe, uh, 1990 charts instead of 1950s charts, on these actuary tables, uh, people are living longer than they were in 1990. So uh, all the death benefits are calculated based on the risk that they're gonna have to pay out this very significant amount of death benefit at any time. And the, the numbers don't lie. Uh, actuaries have managed these uh, since the uh, 1847 was the first whole life contract sold in, in Canada. Uh, they've done very well over this last 175 years. So uh, there's, it's, it's a different outlook. When you've, when you've owned assets for, you know, for example, let's just say that the, the policy that was started uh, first in Canada was 1847 by Canada Life, uh, one of the first insurance companies in Canada. Uh, that insurance policy maybe purchased some assets and that asset has been producing, presumably, a return for 175 years. They probably own that building. Mm -hmm. So, what does what does the what does that building need to produce? Uh, what is the vacancy rate where that building no longer makes sense to own? So, 25% uh, vacancy rate may or may not be a big deal for. Uh, the life insurance company, because if they own 100% of it and don't have any debt, they're just streaming an income from it. Well, they need 25% occupancy, yeah. uh, maybe not 25% vacancy for the numbers and the math to make work. So uh, it's it's a very interesting asset class for sure. Uh, but what we what we know is that actuaries do take about a hundred year view on assets uh, in the and overall the returns of the pool. Yeah, makes sense. Do you think those with that are set up with uh, you know high cash value whole life policies, like the infinite banking concept, should be leveraging their cash amount into other assets? Like, should they be doing that? In my opinion, uh, yes. Now, what should they be doing? Well, any I think I have this little snide comment that all certified financial planners of which I have been one since 2006, uh, we go to school or we take our, our education in order to learn how to say it depends. Uh, so I'm going to say it depends. Should you leverage? 
It depends on why you set it up in the first place. Maybe the sole reason for you to set up that policy was to distribute a tax-free amount of capital to your beneficiaries or a trust on your death. Maybe. Uh, maybe you're, you're planning on using it for, you set it up for your kids uh, and is an alternative to an RESP. You know, kids typically don't go to uh, uh, school and then not continue to live, generally speaking. So they're going to need, why put your capital to use for 17 years when they're going to be alive for 87 years? You're missing 70 years of growth uh, on, that, on that capital. So in my view, because it's not an investment per se, it's a great way to store your capital in a tax-exempt environment. But it's only, to our point earlier, it's, it's only a holding tank for the things you plan to do with that. A great example would be realizing that if you were to take your $30,000, dollars $50,000 that you have in your account and use it to pay cash for a car, well, you're guaranteeing yourself a 20% decline in the value of your cash because of depreciation. Is that the best use of your capital? Or rethinking your thinking. Should you use your insurance contract as a banking system so that the use of that capital can still be used inside that policy, generating that return, but using it and leveraging against it for the for the use of purchasing, purchasing a car? Maybe. Yeah, good answer. I like that. <laughs> I like it. Um, so in, in my opinion, like everything we spoke about, about the issues with the monetary system, fiat currencies, fractional reserve, banking system, to me right now, one of the only solutions I can think of is like Bitcoin um, for many reasons, we're not, which we're going to have to get into. But like, what, what are your thoughts on, on Bitcoin? Yeah, people should have it. To what degree they should invest in it? Uh it depends. <laughs> Coming back to my snide CFP answer, it depends. Yeah. Um, the issue is valuation, of course. And the, the issue of, of Bitcoin valuation is how much risk is one person willing to take in crypto, whether that's Ethereum, Bitcoin, or any of the alter altcoins that exist. Um, should people keep that on an exchange or in a wallet? That also depends. Uh, my personal preference is, is wallets, not exchanges, but it's it, depending on what kind of use you're going to have. What, what is the reason that you're holding on to Bitcoin? Are you, are you purely speculating or are you trying to get out and use an alternative system of, of uh, currency? Again, that, it all comes down to it depends. Should people be purchasing Bitcoin and leveraging against their policy. Again, that depends. It depends on your overall system of finance and economics in order for you to make sure that you're working with an authorized practitioner. I think that's one of the big keys to infinite banking, Costa, is that people aren't in Canada. Typically, they're setting up these policies because they're using an advisor that thinks they know what they're doing, but they're not using an authorized practitioner uh, there's about 45 across Canada. Uh, people don't necessarily need, I mean, I've got my bias. I think they should use one through the Infinite Banking Canada group. But there's, I know many highly skilled, highly qualified Infinite Banking practitioners across the country that aren't participating in our group. And, and they, but in my view, I think they should default to an authorized banking practitioner, not a an investment advisor or an insurance agent that thinks they've heard about it and knows and knows how to do it. They just simply do not and cannot set up the, the policies as correctly and more importantly, help you how to use those policies correctly within the income tax act. So, yeah. And I learned that too, like, you know, going down this rabbit hole of infinite banking and speaking to um, actual infinite banking practitioners versus other very smart people in the industry, but, but not too familiar with this. And like the, the knowledge gap is, is definitely vast. So I would highly yeah. suggest anyone thinking about this to actually speak with a, a practitioner, like you said. Yeah. Um, 
I have a couple of questions about uh, infinite banking relating to businesses. So, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs use the infinite banking concept and these policies in their businesses as well. Um, can you talk about when a business should be thinking about implementing such a policy and what advantages a business would have by doing so? Yeah, absolutely. So this comes back to the Income Tax Act. Uh, it depends on whether a entrepreneur is incorporated or unincorporated as a sole proprietor or partner, uh, having a partnership, an unincorporated partnership. So the first level is understanding what kind of business is going to uh, have the need for an insurance contract. Uh, there are many businesses out there who have business partners who have an agreement to purchase each other's shares uh, of the business should the one of the partners pass away. Well, uh, you can use the company money uh, in order to pay for an insurance policy to pay out a death benefit. I won't get into the tax benefits. There are many, many different tax benefits of that. Uh, there are, are uh, um, uh, other incorporated companies that are maybe a single shareholder or a family type uh, business uh, as an operating company who now have a problem with, I, I, I need to sell my, I want to sell my business. And I want to do a share sale and there's certain uh benefits to selling shares within the income tax act that give rise to an over $900,000 uh, capital gains exemption within the act. Uh, but they have to purify those shares. So let's just say you've got an operating company with uh, maybe three or four or $5 million in uh, passive uh, assets inside that operating company. Well, you're going to need to speak to a tax professional about how to purify and there's many ways to do it, and I won't get into the many ways, but you can use trusts or other corporations or anything, holding companies where you can pass out and flush out the passive assets in order for the business to qualify for that capital gains exemption. Uh, there's very specific rules within the act that you need to do that. However, if it's going to be a, a, a lot of my... Uh, corporate clients are professional corporations. So these are doctors, dentists, lawyers, accountants, realtors, uh, uh, mortgage professionals, any professional that has an incorporation, uh, they're not going to sell that company. And they're going to simply just wind up operations. And then they're going to have this lump sum of, of retained earnings that they've accumulated over the years. Well, it's very inefficient to have those retained earnings, those corporate retained earnings sitting inside a bank account. Why? Tax. Uh, most people don't realize that when their accountant says, here's how much money you made, here's how much tax you owe. Well, everybody's thinking about their operating income, which has uh, fairly decent uh, tax rates. Uh, the British Columbia tax rates for operating income under 500,000 are going to pay 11% in British Columbia. And if you make more than 500,000, you're going to pay 26% on any amount over the small business deduction rate of 500,000. However, if you have retained earnings, let's say you've got a million dollars in your corporation uh, that you've invested, the tax rate on the income or gains that are derived is 51% in British Columbia. That's 50.7%. So give or take 51%. And so you've got, actually got three, uh, potentially three different uh, tax rates going on in your corporation. Well, remember that in a, an insurance company, or sorry, an insurance policy, a bona fide insurance policy that's not designed for cash, but there is an insurance, there has to be an insurable need uh, for that insurance inside the corporation. And, and most often that's to pay out a debt benefit uh, for the shareholder for any number of reasons. Well, those tax exempt insurance, those bona fide insurance policies have the ability to store corporate capital if it's owned and paid for by the corporation. What's the benefit of that? It's tax exempt. So instead of paying 51% on the earnings, the passive earnings, which is like 
interest, rents, royalties, uh, anything that's not really active income, uh, I now take that 51% down to zero because now it's, 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 I can't really call it a tax shelter, but it is sheltered against yeah. that, that tax. So what do people do with that? Well, they still, because the money's sitting in the insurance contract, the business now has the ability to liquidate, collateralize, and control that amount of money inside the corporation for whatever that business purpose is. Uh, potentially, depending on the reason for the, the use of that and the, the loan that's derived again, using the insurance policy as collateral, it could also give rise to an income tax deduction on the interest cost, right? Mm -hmm. So you're still paying the interest that's still flowing into your, uh, indirectly into your insurance contract through the general returns. Uh, but now you've maybe potentially got an, an income tax deduction on the interest rate. So not only is it going to shelter more money from paying that passive uh, rate of the punitive pass, uh, passive income tax rates, but now you're also potentially giving rise to income tax deductions. A lot of, a lot of business owners cost to use the strategy. Uh, it's a very high level strategy called an immediate financing arrangement. And that's using an insurance policy uh, and then essentially immediately borrowing against that policy to pay for expenses. If you do it correctly, it could work. And if you do it incorrectly, as most advisors set it up incorrectly, it could fall apart and cause massive bad uh, tax consequences. And that's that's an actual technical term. It's a massive bad. Uh, <laughs> but I, 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 in my view, I always have said that IBC, using IBC in a corporation is the same thing as having a self-directed immediate financing arrangement. You're not bound to have to take the loan. You're just, again, just the same as a person who's allocating their savings into an insurance contract because it's the most efficient platform to do that. Uh, now I have the, biz the business that has the ability to shelter that money. Now, a couple of pro, co uh, pro quos on that. Uh, even though it's tax exempt, I, and if I'm going to have an operating company that owns this policy, I, I still have to flush that out if I'm going to sell the shares of that company because it's treated as a passive asset, even though you're not paying tax on that passive asset. The death benefit uh, could credit the capital dividend account, uh, which is a tax-free dividend. So when that shareholder or insured person on that insurance policy passes away, the company can flush out the, that money, which is maybe the, the entire bet death benefit, maybe not, uh, flush that out as a tax-free capital dividend. Uh, furthermore, the shareholder, if it's a uh, Canadian-controlled private corporation, uh, can use that if they're the only shareholders. In my view, it's best when it's a, a holding company or a, well, a, a ceased operational company. The shareholders can use the collateral value of that corporate asset, but they can use it personally. So instead of withdrawing money, they can take out a, an insured retirement strategy where they don't have to break the corporate seal. They use, you said it earlier, that the economy is run on credit. Well, why not use credit as a leveraging tool against that corporate asset so that uh, the, the, they're not paying a taxable dividend. I've worked with many accountants on that. And I've had accountants who, after have, have spoken with me, have decided to implement it in their own, in their own practice hmm. because it does work. Yeah. So are, are there any ways to use a policy for in the event a business gets acquired, for example, or, you know, allocating funds or in, in a policy to, to reduce like capital gains tax or anything like that? Any, any yeah. strategies like that? Yeah, so for example, if I were to set a, an insurance contract up in my holding company, and instead of holding my passive assets inside my operating company, I transferred through an intercorporate dividend um, those passive assets up through to my hold co, and my insurance policy is in my hold co. Well, I'm sheltering the, the, the growth of that 
or the interest that I'm usually earning in a bank account in my in my company name, it's now I'm not paying that fifty almost fifty one percent taxes. It's sheltered. It's tax exempt. But because I've flown up all these these dividends over time into my Holdco, I've kept my operating company pure. And in the Income Tax Act, we call that a qualified small business corporation, a QSBC, which means those corporations are eligible for the small business uh, uh, capital gains, lifetime capital gains exemption. So presumably, if I'm the only shareholder of a company and, and it's somewhere in the mid 900s, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. But it's, it's in the mid-900s that I get to have an, a capital gains exemption. So if I have an 800000 if I sell my company for $800,000, I have no passive assets inside that operating company. I can presumably uh, not have pay any tax on that exemption. Now, I do have to watch out uh, for those people who are listening who are like, ah, but is it really all tax-free? Uh, yeah, it's all tax free. However, I still may get caught up in the alternative minimum tax AMT rules. So again, uh, I'm not a CPA, but you need to be guided through that whole process with a with a qualified uh, tax professional. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the number one thing that I see cost is people that are sick and tired of paying tax. They're looking for, and essentially the way that I look, I view uh, a tax exempt uh, life insurance contract inside a corporation. It's a way to duplicate a TFSA because a corporation can't own a TFSA, mm, but true. they can own yeah. a life insurance contract. Yeah, and I get that. I don't. I don't lose the control of that money. I don't lose the liquidity of that money, and I still get to take it out personally without paying tax. And there's a lot of rules around that, but suffice to say that if you set it up correctly. Uh, it does give rise to that benefit. Yeah. What if what if partners uh, like split? Up? There's a policy, and, and partners uh, like split up. Business gets dissolved, and not on like good terms. Like, what happens in in those scenarios? Yeah, I think that that's a great point to bring up, uh, and it's one of the reasons that it's not it's not true that we never have a joint life policy of giving the example of a husband and wife they've maybe been successful <clears throat> they've had uh, a good run at, at depositing money over time into their insurance contract both names are on the contract but now they're going through a divorce well there's a split of that policy that needs to happen or, mm -hmm. or at least consideration of that policy that maybe one spouse gets a policy and the other has to buy the, that that be bought out for that policy Typically, in a corporate scenario, we see policies that are single name. We don't see a lot of corporately owned policies that have two names on it that are business partners. As a matter of mm -hmm. fact, that's probably not recommended. So it'll be individual contracts. Uh, let's just say the corporation dissolves. That, co that company, the assets of that company have to be wound up somehow. So likely what's going to happen in a proper tax plan is that the uh, tax professional is instead of taking that money and those assets personally, which I'm now going to have to pay tax on, they're probably going to go through a series of steps, starts a holding company, a personal holding company for those two shareholders. The company gets split, their insurance policies get split or canceled. You know, if it's a term mm -hmm. insurance policy that's being used, it's, it's fairly easy to cancel or transfer. There may be some rules on, uh, disposition of a policy if it's got cash in it. So all these rules have to be considered um, in in the form of okay, how do we how do we do this? I see a lot of insurance policies in, in holding companies that still facilitate the share buyout in the operating company because there's a uh, um, an agreement that's signed between the business owners that the purpose of that insurance is to buy my shares out on my death. You, you cost me or may not want to be in a business partnership if we're business partners. You don't want to be in a business partnership with my spouse who may or may not uh, bring any business acumen to the table that I might bring or, or, or things of that nature. So um, first right of refusal on the shares, right? Yeah, uh, it, that makes sense. The, the unfortunate part is that a lot of business owners have a handshake deal. Yeah. Who doesn't 
who doesn't adhere to a handshake deal? The spouse of the deceased shareholder. Mm. Well, we had an agreement. Well, I don't care. Just show me the evidence of this agreement. It was a handshake deal. Good luck with that in court. Yeah, for sure. What about any, like, um, are there any ways to use this policy as like a tax deferral method? Like if you, you know, had a, have a capital gain that you cashed out on whatever it was and, you know, funneling that into a policy, is anything like that possible? So the rules on a capital gain don't change because you have an insurance policy. The, the, the payment uh, sequence or the payment structure of the facility in order to pay that capital gains can be best paid through an insurance contract. I'll explain why. Uh, if you had a, a company that didn't qualify, maybe it's a holding company, you've got land assets, maybe you've got your Bitcoin holdings in a, in a, in a holding company or something for that, of that nature. Uh, and you pass away, that company doesn't and would never qualify as a qualified small business corporation and wouldn't qualify for uh, different uh, post-mortem planning, such as pipeline planning or 164-6 planning, uh, you would have a deemed disposition on those shares, mm -hmm. right? The disposition is taxable, but the insurance policy that's used uh, on your death, that, that's paid out on your death, can be used to pay those taxes. So you, you, we can't avoid yeah. paying towards those capital gains, but we're just saying, what's the best facility to pay for those capital gains uh, uh, taxes? Do you see uh, that often? People leveraging oh, their policies to pay their taxes? Is that advisable well, strategy? They wouldn't, they wouldn't leverage against them to pay their taxes. The death benefit would pay out in order to pay those taxes when they're due on a deemed disposition. You're deemed right. to dispose of your assets on your death. So um, we don't have any estate tax uh, in Canada and estate fees in Canada. We have some probate fees, province to province, depending. Uh, but we don't have what the U.S. has, which is uh, the IRS ass assesses uh, fees, specific fees and costs to states that are worth over a certain amount. No, so let, me, let me rephrase it. Let's say someone or paint uh, like an example. Let's say someone, uh, you know, bought shares or like bought Bitcoin, let's just say like 10 years ago, cashed it out today. And they have a huge capital gains. So they owe a lot of taxes next year or whatever. Is it advisable? And you have a cash policy. Is it advisable to uh, leverage a loan from your cash policy to pay that your taxes next year? Again, it depends on the structure of the policy, who owns the policy, who pays for the policy, how much cash value there is. And is there any other reason that you want to keep that Let's just say, for example, that you've got Bitcoin worth $2 million. You bought it for a hundred bucks. So essentially zero. You now have a million dollar, sorry, a $2 million gain based on the current rules. The inclusion rate is 50%. So you're only going to be assessed tax on a million dollars that is going to be included as income. So now in a 53% tax bracket, let's just say 50 for nice, easy math, you've got $500,000 tax bill. So let's just say you have a million dollars of cash inside your insurance contract. Well, if I had capital that I would use to deploy and pay off that money, that is my opportunity cost is I lose the ability for my money to continue to work for me. However, if I leverage against my policy, just as, as I would leverage my policy for any other singular cost, uh, I'm going to pay uh, interest on that. And I'm going to amortize that cost over time if I decide to pay off the loan. Now, I may not choose to pay off the loan. And I may just pay it out of my death benefit in the future. So I have to, am I going to pay interest on that or not interest on that? Am I going to pay the principal on that loan or not? It, this is where the infinite banking practitioner comes into uh, its value is saying, analyzing the loan and saying, is it worth me paying it off? However, uh, you may decide that oh, 
I've got that million dollars in my life insurance contract earmarked for something different. And I'm really struggling with paying this tax bill off with that. Talk to your infinite banking practitioner. Like, do you have another facility to pay off that, that capital gains tax? Maybe, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. I guess it's such a, yeah, there, there's, it all depends. Like there, it's such a nuanced, uh, you know, scenario. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, Mike, th- this was such a great conversation. If someone wanted to learn more, reach out to you. Where, where's the best place uh, they can find you? Yeah, generally speaking, Costa, the uh, the collaborative group, the Infinite Banking Canada group, is best to check out at ibcanadagroup.com. dot uh, com, and uh, they can access uh, resources, uh, talk to an Infinite Banking practitioner in their uh, local province, uh, have a conversation with them, sign up for the masterclass. Uh, all of our contact info is is there on the uh, uh, about us part of the website, and and there's just a ton of information there uh, about infinite banking and links to our YouTube channel, and and we've got a lot of videos on YouTube about infinite banking in Canada. So you know, just I would just suggest that that site is the kind of the the, the first place that I would go to is ibcanadagroup.com. Perfect. And, and is, is someone like, let's say from Ontario able to work with a practitioner in another province or do you have to work with someone in the same province? Are you going to hate me for saying it depends again? <laughs> well, come on. <laughs> yeah. It, it's uh, in Canada, which is not necessarily true in the States, but in Canada, we are all provincially regulated and the insurance, okay. uh, the representative insurance councils of each province uh, license uh, insurance uh, agents in each province. Uh, so if somebody, uh, we've got many practitioners uh, that are multi-provincially licensed. So just mm. because you have uh, somebody living in, I don't know why I'm thinking of the name, but Flynn Flon, Manitoba, and they want to deal with Steve McClellan, who's in Halifax. Uh, if Steve is licensed uh, to deal in Flynn Flon, uh, then, or in Surrey, Manitoba, then he could deal with them. Uh, yeah. My preference would probably be that if you're in Manitoba, you should talk to Tom Rennick, who's our uh, a licensed guy in, in Manitoba. There's many people that are multi-provincially licensed. So uh, again, contact uh, ibcanadagroup.com through that website and uh, we'll find a practitioner. If you're asking for a specific practitioner, it, uh, it'll depend on whether they're licensed in your province to do business. So nice okay perfect perfect good to know uh michael it was a real pleasure thank you so much i'm excited to uh to to share this and just get uh more people aware of uh all this amazing information and uh, hopefully it, it piques some interest and uh, you know builds up the momentum in, in with this concept for sure well thanks very much costa for your time and allowing me to just speak to your listeners and and uh, i would i would just encourage people to Remember that using an, an authorized practitioner is the yeah. is yeah. the most important first step in your journey of discovering what IBC is, how it works in Canada, what the differences are in the rules, regulations, laws, and legislation surrounding insurance contracts in Canada compared to the uh, U.S. And um, yeah, for more information, feel free to reach out. But thank you for having us on. Amazing. Thanks again. And uh, we'll be in touch. Okay. Thanks, Cost. Appreciate it.